Welcome to Effortless Swimming, the podcast for swimmers, triathletes, and coaches. Join Australian swim coach Brenton Ford as he reveals the latest techniques and information to improve your swimming. Let's dive right in. So uh, I want to welcome everyone to this Google Hangout with, with Bobby McGee. Um, I came across Bobby um, from a, a friend of mine who said, oh, you should check out what um, what this guy's doing um, online. Watch his videos. He's just got some really good um, tips with running. So I've been watching Bobby's videos for the last couple of months, uh, and I really like what he's doing. I, I think we've got a very similar coaching philosophy, um, and that's why I wanted to get him on a call today because uh, just watching some of his videos, I've improved my run, um, and so I know... Um, you'll probably be able to do the same with yours. So, Bobby, welcome to the Google Hangout session. Thanks, Brent. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I must say, I like your stuff too because you know when we started communicating, I I got a chance to look at look at some of that stuff, and we had that chat about uh, some of your backgrounds are, are are fantastic because of those great colours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, I think I, most people are probably familiar with your background. Your Olympic run. Coach, but um, for those that aren't familiar with your background, um, could you give us a bit of a, a rundown on you know, your background and some of the athletes that you've worked with? Yeah, I started off, I was a high school teacher for 12 years and uh, I've been coaching uh, distance running in some form or another uh, for, this is my 31st year actually of coaching, it uh, seriously ages me. <laughs> and um, I started uh, intensely coaching triathletes in, in uh, 2002. Um, and I started with triathlon myself in in 1985, um, but middle distance runners first, a uh, bunch of milers and 800 meter runners. Uh, coached the kid who ended up in the top 10 in the world for 1500 and and one mile. And then uh, um, in 1996, I was coaching almost exclusively coaching uh, road runners, and I coached the uh, the Olympic the Olympic champion in in Atlanta in the marathon. And then I had some world records on the road and uh, some world champions on the road as well. In there, I've also coached some uh, age group race walkers, some amateur race walkers to world titles. And then, uh, you know, the last decade has been uh, full on with, with, with the triathletes, uh, mostly with the, with the ITU style triathletes, but I see a lot of uh, long course athletes for, for the biomechanics specifically. And then I do some of the uh, long course pros. I help them with the mental skills as well. Awesome. And what, what I, we were talking about earlier and what I want to get out of um, the Hangout today is, is just giving some you know, five, six, seven tips that triathletes can take away and go and use in their training and their racing to you know, start improving right away. And so we've talked about a few of these things and we've, um, we've written them down, but the first one is uh, running off the bike. So what's the difference between someone who's, um, you know, you might be starting just a normal run race with someone and they might beat you in that race, but then you might beat them off the bike. Can you talk about some of the differences between running off the bike and normal running? Yeah, the, the research is still in its early stages, you know, with, with the Olympics only starting for triathlon in, in 2000. The research is in its early stages. Some of the Italians are doing some good stuff. But in 2009, the AIS did some work uh, in at the World Championships and, and found that a uh, uh, a pretty large percentage of age groupers, almost uh, more than a third of them, I think, uh, actually lose access to their neuromuscular patterning when they run. They, so they neurologically are incapable of running 
off the bike as well, you know, anywhere near close to the form that they would have if they were just running in an open race. And then I think as much as 17% of the pros suffer from the same thing. But what happens is, is uh, uh, when you get off the bike, uh, good runners uh, probably have about a 5 to 1 ratio in terms of elastic return to power, and a poorer runner has a higher power component. And in triathlon on the bike, obviously that's all power. And so if you're a power type rider and then you, you try and back that up with a power type run, you're going to run into trouble very, very quickly. And then another factor that plays into that is, is if you have a low rating, especially for age groupers that are doing, uh, riding a time trial position on the bike, uh, and let's say they have a rating, you know, 75, 80, 85 revs a minute on the bike, and then they, they get onto the run and they need a higher rating than that, it's a very, very difficult neuromuscular transition to make. And so what we're doing with the long course athletes at the moment and with the ITU kids is we're trying to get them to run with a higher rating so that their run is less predicated on strength. Mm. And that's um, that's something we spoke about yesterday. So if uh, so, you've got a triathlete and their rating on the run might be, I don't know, 85. So you're recommending that on the bike they should be rating about the same? About the same? Uh, you actually want them rating... When they're racing, depending on how fast they are, so some of the, you know, in some of the slower paces that people are running, say, six minutes a K or something off the bike, then they're going to rate a little lower. They, they're going to rate probably around about 88 to 90 when they race. But typically, you probably want them in the mid-90s. And so it's not as easy as just moving your rating up on the bike, you know. So if you typically have habituated yourself to produce good power at, at the lowest possible heart rate to meet the demands of competition, at a, at a low rev rate, let's say 80, uh, um, and then you want to move your rev rate up on the bike so that you can run better, uh, you're going to be inefficient on the bike. So it's a, it's a neuromuscular learning curve as opposed to just moving the rating up on the bike. So it's pointless going to ride 90 on the bike, not producing good power, having your heart rate go through the roof just because you, you want to run at that same rating. So it, it's much more of an organic process to, to get to that. As I said yesterday, um, you know, people need to bike-proof themselves to be able to run well, and part of that is, is going through that process of moving up their rating. Mm. And another thing is, what's, what are some of the different approaches in training to short stuff versus long stuff? So someone who's doing a, a sprint distance triathlon compared to a half Ironman or an Ironman? Well, um, it's very important that if you're a sprint distance racer, um, and it's, and it's cut and thrust type racing, a lot of surges, a lot of accelerations, a lot of different paces of running, and then obviously a much higher intensity of running at a, at, for a very short distance, then your training benefits a lot more from uh, VO2 max type training, intermittent type uh, training where you're doing fart leg uh, gear changes, that kind of thing. Whereas if you're a long course athlete, you really want to train yourself to be rock steady. You want to be able to, you know, want to be a pacing genius and be able to run just steady, 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 no matter what people are doing off the bike at the start of the run, you really, really want to start out smooth at the pace that the conditions allow and that your fitness allows and stick to that pace no matter what's going on around you. And so the training approach is very different. And in fact, there is some anecdotal evidence that people that do intermittent training get really, really fit. They have good numbers, but they don't race as well over the longer distances and vice versa. If you're doing a lot of steady type of training, uh, you know, which is your race-based training for 
for the shorter distances for the sprint and the Olympic distance, um, uh, then and, and you get involved in these races where there's lots of changes of pace, lots of hills, lots of accelerations, um, quick quick uh, starts out of T2, uh, then, then you don't do as well. So it's a very much the law of specificity. You, you want long, steady stuff for the long, steady races, and you want the more intermittent, explosive, fast-paced running for the shorter races. Mm. And you're, you're talking about also uh, about building the the muscles to you know to be able to, to deal with that. And so you're talking about your low intensity type running, and, and how much how much low intensity training should you be doing? Well, you know the the research is is pretty clear here that that uh, your physiology likes um, consistency the most. So the, the more consistent you can be, uh, the better. And when, when, you, when you're running a little slower, uh, you know, it's the age-old conundrum for triathletes. What happens is, is that the guys go out the door and they're only running five times a week or they're only running four times a week and their running counterparts are running seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven times a week. You know, they're doing two-a-days and stuff like that, which, which very few triathletes do. And so when they do go out so infrequently, they tend to push the pace a little bit. And when they do that, um, they don't have to worry about backing up the next day with a run because they're going to be on the bike or they're going to be in the water or both. And, and, and what, what happens is, is from those faster-paced runs, they just don't develop that consistency. They actually detrain from training too hard too often. And so they need to slow down a little bit because what they're really trying to do you know, is increase their bone density a little bit if they come from a swimming background. They are trying to develop some consistency that they can back it up the next day with some more run training because, you know, those repeated run efforts are, are the things that, that lead to good conditioning. So, you know, I, I'm always telling the, the, the triathletes to slow down. And then they're such, they're such tech geeks that, you know, they find out from the lab or for some, from some kind of test that their training pace should be 5 minutes a K or 4.30 a K. And they get out the door and they look at the watch and they try and run 4.30 a K off the bat, but maybe their body needs six minutes a K until they settle down. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, I think a, a good coach w- with a triathlete's run is, is always putting on the handbrake, you know, because you can, you can bike a lot more, you can swim a lot more because those environments and those activities are more conducive to volume. Whereas running, you have to have a different mindset. You have to be very patient. You have to wait for it. Mm. Uh, that, as, a, as a kid, when I was training for, for swimming, that's one of the things that I, I obviously didn't know about that kind of training, keeping your heart rate lower and, and training at the lower intensity. So a lot of the longer stuff, whether it was 2100s or you know, 2 or 3K set, I did it where I was really pushing the limit and working hard because I like to work hard. And that's one of the things that, that, a real, you know, that a really good athlete, that's one of the things that they develop over time is that they learn that training isn't all, always about going as hard as you can and pushing yourself and being absolutely knackered at the end of the session. It's about being specific about your training and training the zone that you need to train for that session or for that set. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, athletes that go hammer and tongs at it all the time, uh, they get to a point where they just don't want to do it anymore. And I think that's why a lot of people gravitate up from, from the sprint and the Olympic distance to the longer courses because it's just a lot more tolerable and the intensity is a lot more tolerable. And, um, you know, in order to build, build consistency, uh, you know, 80%, 90% of, of, of your run training, including your bike and your swim, I mean, I think the swim is a little different, but I think 80%, 90% of your swim and your, of your run and your bike needs to be super, super easy and it must be really, really enjoyable. 
so that you can prepare yourself to do those quality workouts. You don't really need a whole bunch of quality run workouts to, to bring on your run to its, to its top level, but you do need a lot of consistency, and that you can get by going a little easier. Yeah, definitely. That's With my swim squad, that's something that we've done this year towards our open water season is that we've done a lot more longer stuff that's been lower intensity, and it's paid off big time. The results this season have been really good because of that. So it's um it's it's a big uh it was a big light bulb moment for me I think when I realised um, that that's the kind of training that you do need to be doing. Um even even some of the sprinters need to be doing this low intensity type stuff. Which, oh absolutely. Um, yeah. You know it's it's so very interesting. Most people um uh can do a, a good level of quality work. You know when I'm working with a marathon runner or a half marathon runner, half Ironman, Ironman type of athlete. You know, and they come from an explosive background. Let's say they're basketball players or they're footy players or something like that. Uh, and they really like to get their, their heads around a real juicy, tough workout and, and, you know, just, uh, get on the rivet and hammer. But, but, you know, they just don't develop quite as well. And if you can slow them down, build, build some, some consistency over time, have them run for, for six weeks continuously without some kind of breakdown or niggle or illness or, or, you know, injury, then the fitness benefits are amazing. As I said earlier, you know, your physiology smiles on consistency and very few athletes can consistently chat, train at a very, very high intensity all the time. They just go flat. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And the, uh, with this um, with this hangout, with this podcast, I, w- I was going to uh, make it about the similarities between running and swimming because I think there's a lot, a lot to be said for the similarities there. Um, and, and one of the things is consistency. You know, if you're not in the pool three times a week, then you're just going to lose feel of the water. So, you know, if you're getting there three, four, five times a week, then you're just going to be able to maintain that feel of the water and continue to improve. And uh, the same things with your run, I guess. You know, I'm sure you see this problem all the time. People that come to swimming, you know, in their mid-20s or their mid-30s or even in their 40s, and they now come to swimming and they just, just take so long if, if they even ever get there to, to have a feel for the water. Now, the same thing is, is true of the run. You know, my, my good friend Libby Burrell, who's head of uh, uh, Triathlon uh, Canada High Performance, she's always saying she, she doesn't want the kids away from the water for more than 24 hours. But because of the intense uh, nature of running and the, and the recovery requirements, we tend to stay away from our running a lot more. And in, similarly, athletes that haven't grown up in endurance running haven't got the skill. And we know that duration builds fitness in running, but frequency builds skill. And so if you have an unskilled runner, somebody who's not smooth, somebody who, who runs with a lot of power, they need a lot of frequency. And so I say, you know, if you're running four or five hours a week or three or four hours a week uh, and you're doing, you know, four-hour runs to achieve that, you're probably better off going to run six times for 45 minutes or something like that, you know. Mm. Yeah, so, definitely. So it's exactly the same as swimming. Um, if they're not skilled as runners, they need frequency. They need opportunities to do that. And they can't run too long because then their form starts to deteriorate as they fatigue, both posturally and centrally. And when they fatigue, then their run form goes off, and then they're habituating bad run form. And so, you know, when you go to these long course races, you actually see people running far worse than when they are actually competing in an Olympic distance triathlon because they're strong enough to stay in some kind of a form 
in the Olympic distance race, but in the long course race, they just fall apart and they just look terrible and they and they lose all those advantages of their fitness because they've lost their form. Mm. And I was I was watching one of your videos uh, the other week, and you're talking about the forward lean of running. And so, not coming from a running background, I've never really heard about you know you, that you should be leaning forward and and to what angle. But can you talk a little bit about the forward lean of running and what that's got to do with your speed and, and cadence and things like that? You know, um, the forward lean sometimes gets a bad name because a lot of a, a lot of uh, lifetime runners, you know, they don't even think about it. They just get into their posture quite naturally. And and some of the elite runners are they look quite kind of quite upright, but the whole thing with the forward lean is to increase your opportunity to maintain your pivot. So you know people need to lean from the ankles. They need to be loose enough in the soleus, which is the lower calf muscle, and the Achilles tendon to be able to do that. But it's much more a connection of having your spine be in neutral. In other words, if your shoulders are too arched back. All right, in that in that fashion there, then that makes you upright. If your if your if your chest is too far down and you bent at the hips, that's no good as well. You need to get yourself up into that position there. And if you're leaning too far forward for your speed, and your feet are coming into the ground from the back and kicking dirt forward, kicking gravel forward when you're running, then you're leaning forward too much. So it's basically just like a an athletic position, like a, a tennis player or something like that, being with the with the weight on the balls of their feet, with their shoulders hanging slightly ahead of their hips and their hips hanging slightly ahead of their ankles, where if they stop pushing down with their feet, they would take a little step and a little stumble forward. So it's just a, a creation of a forward momentum, and it comes by by aligning the chest, just bringing the chest down in the front, so that that little uh, forward momentum is created. But it's it's not it's not a massive forward lean that is difficult to maintain, puts pressure on the low back and causes you to to over rotate. It's just a very subtle. It's called dynamic balance, but it's really a very subtle static imbalance. It's just that little fall forwards, so that uh, you know if you, if you were if you were running along and you stumbled and fell, you'd fall forward. You wouldn't fall straight down. Mm. And you've got some, if you go to your website, which is um, bobbymcgee.com, uh, I think there's a good video on the homepage there that talks a bit more about it. So um, Correct. If, you, if anyone's looking for a more visual um, way to explain it, then, you've, yeah, you've got a good video on your homepage there. So um, go and check that out. Uh, the other thing is midfoot and heel striking. So, um, again, another new concept for me as a swimmer, but um, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, which types of runners uh, are Heel strikers, which types of runners are midfoot strikers, and you know what's the difference and what are the advantages and um, disadvantages, I guess, of each of them. Yeah, well, you know, right now with the advent of of uh, Lieberman's study on on African runners, habitually unshod runners, and the book Born to Run, um, uh, we, we you know forefoot running and and midfoot running has has become you know, a sexy concept and a lot of uh, shoe companies have jumped on the bandwagon and a lot of minimalist or, or sort of barefoot running type shoes have come into play. But the, but the truth is, is that changing somebody's mechanics that dramatically is highly risky and for probably 100% of, of age groupers, it's not a good idea to suddenly become a midfoot striker. I think that uh, doing some barefoot running, you know, running around on, on some grass or some synthetic turf or something like that 
to strengthen your feet uh, for five or ten minutes before or after a running session might be a good idea. Uh, but to change your gait that dramatically is not such a good idea. The big thing is, is if you're a heel striker, to make sure you're an effective heel striker. And if you're a midfoot striker, be an effective midfoot striker. So an effective heel striker lands on the outside of the heel, uh, all right, and then the foot rolls like a partial wheel straight onto the ground and slightly inwards. So, you know, it, it's slightly that away so that it loads the plantar fascia over here, all right. But if there's a two-beat strike, if the heel hits the ground and then just immediately after that you hear that forefoot slap down to the ground, that's not such a good idea. That could lead to shin splints and all sorts of, of problems. And what happens with the heel striker that has too much support in their shoe, and this is why you'll notice that the drop in running shoes has got a lot lower in the heel than it used to be in the past, what happens then is, is the foot decelerates too quickly that way, inwards, as opposed to transitioning forward and off the, the middle toes. And then with the midfoot striker, the big problem is from the bike and triathlon that, that the Achilles and the calf muscle gets too tight and then the athlete lands on the midfoot, and then as their foot passes underneath them, they are unable to put their heel down on the ground because that tissue is too tight. And then the tissue has to hold the heel off the ground for the entire stance phase of the gait, and that, that's not a good idea either. So if you're a midfoot striker, you're basically landing just behind this bone here, and then the heel is rolling down, and then you're coming up the foot. So the heel just kisses the ground. There's just a little support phase there. But, you know, those things are, are, are almost subservient to, to what your shin angle is doing. So if this is your foot over here and, you, and you're hitting the ground, that shin angle should be vertical or even landing slightly forward if I'm traveling in that direction. So that shin angle, vertical, as soon as that shin angle, when the shoe starts to bear weight, when the foot starts to bear weight, is leaning backwards like that, now you're starting to develop tr tr trouble for the, you know, the ankle, the, the heels, the knee, the hip the low back and so on. So it's it's a more a question of getting your foot underneath you. What impacts the ground first is a, a little less important. And we find that uh, a lot of top road runners and especially triathletes would probably benefit from being heel strikers just because their calf muscles work so hard when they're on the bike. Yeah, right. I'm curious um, as to what, what do you think a lot of run injuries come down to? Is it technique? Is it the type of shoes or is it a combination? You know, I think that, uh, you know, most running injuries, the, the largest percentage of running injuries are knee-related knee and then, then ankle and foot. Uh, and I think it comes down to, in triathlon, probably most of the injuries are sourced on the bike. You know, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of a very small pedal, especially if you're an athlete with bigger feet. You know, if you, if you have a, you know, a, a size 11 or a size 12 or something like that, and, and the pedal is on a very narrow part of the foot there. It's too easy for the foot to do that when you're pedaling, all right? And, you know, whatever your, your tendency is, that could create problems. So I like a nice broad pedal that supports the foot very, very well. And so I think a lot of times pushing heavy gears, um, low, low revs on the bike, those things all set us up, and then the running exposes the injury that has been created on the bike. But I think that uh, footwear might might be problematic, but I think that if you took a, a, an actual cross-section of the community, that, that footwear has actually made it possible for people to run more than they would have been able to run without a, a slightly more technical shoe. 
Okay, right. And then is there is there something that you look for in a shoe then? Is there shoes that you tend to avoid? Oh, uh, well, you, you know, I, 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 as a general rule of thumb, I would just say, you know, you want a good bit of room up in the front of the shoe. You want at least a thumb of room in, in, in the front of the shoe, you know, so that when you are doing, you know, triathlons and you're running downhill and you're putting your shoes on and not, not lacing them very effectively because you, you know, you're in a hurry to get your shoes on and to race off, you, you need a little bit of room in the front of that shoe. The second thing is, is choose the least amount of shoe that works for you. If you need a little bit of support and it's clear that you need a little bit of support and you're overpronating, not just normally pronating, then a little bit of help from a shoe works. If you have, you know, if you've been getting injuries because the shoe is up too high at the back, try a little lower heel lift, but I wouldn't go from a structured shoe to a, to a minimalist shoe in one go. It, it would be disastrous. And so, uh, you know, there's, there's no specific model or even specific type of shoe that I recommend. But I do, uh, you know, probably from a footwear standpoint with triathletes who tend to have to buy a lot of equipment anyway, they might not be changing their shoes out often enough. And, you know, we talk about a shoe having about 500 Ks before that EVA is, is blown. And I would say with the average triathlete, I'd probably change that shoe out more often, especially if there's an imbalance. If you put your shoe up, on a shelf like this and you look at the back of the shoes and, and the shoes are standing this way or this way, it's probably time to get rid of those shoes anyway. Mm, good, uh, good point. Good tip. Now, the other, the other thing that, uh, so one of the guys that I coach, he did the Iron, the Ironman Melbourne yesterday. He said, um, he was telling me about the walk-run method uh, for people who are doing you know, quite long triathlons or long running events. So I'd never heard of that before, but Walk-run method is basically where you've got a long event, you might be a marathon, and you're going to walk for part of it and run for part of it, which I thought was a strange concept. But um, it's done by the done by the top guys and top girls and um, should be done by age groupers as well. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, the, the run-walk has, has brought uh, a lot of success to, to a lot of different levels of athletes. With the elites, it's a really, really good way to, to move up their volume. And for a beginner who comes, say, from a swimming background or from a non, non-sport background and wants to get into the sport of triathlon and immediately has to deal with that kicked-in-the-butt feeling of getting off the bike and then trying to run, it works for, for all of the communities across the way. So, for example, a beginner would get a lot further, uh, would get uh, much less uh, problems with injuries, would gain fitness much quicker if they just took on a protocol of walk a minute, run a minute. And, you know, and then, you know, if you're a better athlete and you're doing these longer races, you can do anything from uh, six minutes of running and 30 seconds of walking all the way up to, say, nine or ten minutes of running with one minute of walking. But the best way to test it is just go out on a, on a longish run that you typically do uh, one week and go out there and, and just run it normally and have a look at what your time is and, and try to equate the conditions. And then the next week go out there and run it. Uh, with a walk-run interval, just choose an interval, say maybe run with for nine minutes, walk for a minute, and see if you come up with a better time. So the idea is, is not for you to run slower. During the nine-minute section, you're running slightly faster, uh, and in the walking section, also very, very important is that you don't dawdle, that you really hoof it, that you you know you walk at a good pace. You know, uh, you know, it's it's not that difficult to get get around 35 minutes if you're walking for a, for a 5k. 
you know, and so that kind of pace, you're not, you're not losing a lot. And the thing too with a walk is it should have a much higher cadence than what we're used to walking at. The arm should be up and it should be very reminiscent of how we run so that the transition is not so dramatic. We don't lose, lose our rhythm. But it's, it's an absolute no-brainer. And the only thing that stands between people having tremendous success with the walk-run method and insisting that they try and run the whole way is the ego. They just, they just, they just don't want to be seen walking at the beginning of a race. And if you proactively walk, sometimes I'll take an Ironman athlete and I'll just say to him, have you ever run the entire marathon? You know, and when you get to the end of the marathon, are you getting kudos for the fact that you did a six hour marathon and you ran the whole way? Or do you want to go five hours and run walk it? You know, so it's, it's, it's yeah. that, it's, it's that dramatic. So it's a good way to build volume. Over and above that 10, 15% rule, it's a great way. If people walk, run, they feel so much better the next day. They can also walk, run for so much longer than they could just run for. Uh, it's vascularly better for them. It's easier to digest your foodstuffs and get your liquids down. It's very much easier to keep your pacing up. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And so if someone's sort of on the, hit a plateau with their run speed or you know, with their run times, then um, that's something that they should definitely uh, consider trying. And as you said, it's a no-brainer. So um, you can just go out there and try it and, and see what your results are like. You know, people forget that when we started interval training, you know, I don't know when it was, in the 20s or something, the idea was is that if you want to run a mile a little faster, you could only run a mile that fast. At some stage, you have to fractionalize the distance, run a little bit more than the distance in chunks, and then run that little bit more faster and then put it together in a faster mile. And all the walk-run method is, is interval training for endurance athletes. You know, so mm. in other words, it's not easy for people to run 42.2 Ks. You know, and so if you fractionalize that, they're able to run a little bit faster and, and they also forget that they're not standing still during the walk break. It's also not forced on them. It's proactive. They're still moving forward. And they catch so many people at the end that as soon as they just do one race like that, they're sold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, it's such an interesting concept. So, I mean, the furthest I've run is, you know, a half marathon. And I think, uh, that would have been a good method to, um, to use in the race because I certainly struggled at the end and the last sort of five Ks, um, were very slow. So, um, yeah, with my next long race, that's, I'm definitely going to be using it. Um, yeah, the other thing simple, is simple rule of thumb. If you're going up a hill and you're trying to run and somebody walks past you, you should be walking too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's one that'll stick with people if they're getting past by someone walking walking up a hill. Exactly. Um, now the other thing is building strength. So um, we've talked a bit about how important strength is um, for running because once you lose your strength and lose your, as you call it, structural integrity, um, that's when you, you know things turn to um, turn to crap, so to speak. So what are some exercises that you get your runners to do to build strength so that they can maintain form towards the end of a race? Very, very good question. Uh, I think as a, as a preamble to this, what's important is for people to realize that your foot's on the ground for about a third of a second. So it's a very short period of time and no amount of, of strength work is going to help you maintain integrity in a third of a second because it's just too slow. So people have to do strength work in order to be able to do power work. And power work is what you need for your running. So obviously your primary muscles in your legs, your quads, 
your your soleus muscles, your lower calf muscles, your hamstrings, your glutes, especially your external rotators, the little glute muscles at the top, uh, at the back, those need to be not only strong, but they need to be powerful. And so if people could progress from uh, doing, you know, regular squats, regular single-legged squats, moving to a little bit more of an explosive pattern, maybe doing, you know, little explosive squats, a little bit more explosive um, single-legged squats, and then even doing some small hops and some small bounds. Lunges are fantastic. Just start off really, really cautiously and then build your way through. But a lunge is a power move. You step out, you carry your full weight, you go down, you come back up again. So those kind of exercises are very, very important. And one of those YouTube clips that you'll find too is one of the king exercises that, that I, I recommend for runners, especially in triathlon. And it's the monster walk where they strengthen those external rotator muscles, which are so very important to maintain stability when we run. And then the last thing is, is, you know, we bike, we go hilly courses, we swim. All of these activities massively fatigue our posterior chain, our, our, our muscles that keep us upright. And then when those muscles fail when we run, we actually pull our shoulders back. We lose a mechanical advantage. So triathletes must go to a lot of trouble to keeping their, their back strong and also keeping their pecs loose at the same time so that they can maintain their postural integrity. Mm. And you were saying yesterday that if you haven't got the structural integrity, um, nothing else matters in terms of your nutrients and what you take in and that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's it's like a bottleneck. You know, I come from South Africa originally, and and one of the problems that we have with uh, with cheetahs is that they have a, a genetic bottleneck. There's not enough genetic material, and so the species is in danger. And so you can do all this lactate threshold training, you can do all this tempo training, you can do all this, uh, you know, this great heat training. You can prepare yourself for a race. You can teach yourself to be a fat burner. You can you can be technically very sound. But if you, if your structure, the, the strength in your groin and in your glutes and in your hip flexors and in your knees and your ankles and your back fails, you have no access to all of that fitness. And so the primary part of running that is so key is that, is that microsecond from the time that your foot starts to bear weight until it leaves the ground. If your hip on the upper, opposite side is dropping and your spine is turning into an S and that knee is coming down and you're losing vertical height, you're going downwards and then you have to gather that all up and bring yourself up, it's going to be a long day in Kona. <laughs> that's right. So that's, um, and yeah, same goes for swimming is if you haven't got the, the structural integrity to be able to maintain your form towards the end of the race. Um, then you know nothing else really matters, as you say. So um, I learned that from you guys. The swimming guys taught me the concept of you can't fire a cannon from a canoe. <laughs> That's right. And you know, if you look at um, if you look at say a, a two hundred or four hundred free um, in the you know not the professionals but the sort of lower levels, you will see a, a huge change in the technique in that last fifty meters when swimmers start to hit the wall and that piano jumps on their back. Um, and you can just see their form go out the window. But the guys who finish off strong and, and do finish at the front end of races, they're the guys that are able to, to maintain their, their form the whole way um, through. So it's, exactly. uh, it's really important in whatever sport you're doing. Yeah, people, you can see in running too, those people that are staying on top of the ground and they have some little bounce and a little flick in their step, Versus those people that are starting to sink into the road and their heads are going up and down and they're, and, they're, and they're dropping their pelvis and stuff like that. You can see 
that you know it's not necessarily the engine that's failing; it's 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 muscle endurance that's costing them. Mm. Now I've just got some questions here in the chat pad, and I see that we, there must be a limit of ten people. So um, apologies to the not the people who uh, might not be able to get into the um, the chat pad here. But we've got two questions. The first one is from Alison. She's asked, uh, "What exercises would you have runners do?" that have issues uh, or injuries with patella tracking or are there any exercises that you'd recommend? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, the, the first thing to remember is is that the, the lateral quads, the, 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 the quad muscles on the outside uh, are much, much bigger and much, much stronger than the quad muscles on the inside and so that they're always going to be dominant and especially when you ride the bike, they're going to be more dominant and create uh, patella tracking problems. The thing, second thing to remember is is that the the muscle, the primary muscle on the inside of the knee, the vastus medialis, is it has its own nerve root, and and it's a muscle that can tend to switch off. So you've got to make sure that that muscle is activated and firing. And then uh, from a functional standpoint, your best bet is those uh, single legged squats, and then progressing on to to hops to keep, to keep that right. And then can you? Kiny tape is is a good way to just encourage that that uh, uh, that patella you know tracking to be correct. In other words, you you'll put the uh, mm. if this was it was your knee and this is the outside of your leg, you know, putting the tape this way around that knee sometimes helps it uh, start tracking and get it get it firing correctly. Another thing to do is is to stay very very close to your your foam roller, and to do a lot of active release work for your quads and your hip flexors, especially for your rectus femoris, and that'll that'll protect your knee from bending too much and that and, and stabilizing that patella, patella more. Tell you what, the foam rollers are they're brutal, but they're good. They, um, I've only got onto them in the last sort of twelve months, but they can really get stuck into your uh, ITBs and um, okay. you know, your muscles. They're they're awesome. Don't get a wimpy one either, all right? You've got to have a piece of PVC <laughs> pipe in the inside at least. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to step it up, I think. Um, yeah. We've <laughs> got <laughs> another question here um, from Revere. I hope I'm saying it right, Revere. Uh, and she's asked, what technique do you recommend on a steep downhill mountain marathon run? So I, I guess what sort of technique um, do you need to have on a downhill run? You know, downhill running is very problematic for people, especially, you know, if, if, you, if you're more of a heel striker, it becomes even more problematic. But the idea is to realize that when you're going downhill, is not to step out away from the surface, but actually to step down the surface, to try and get your foot a little closer to the ground. So you're not stepping away and then dropping an increased distance. It, it also helps a lot if you can if, if you're doing a long race is to pick your rating up so that you bear less weight per step. If you're doing a short race like a 5k or a 10k off the bike, then you know you might be strong enough to just let go and let momentum take you down the hill and take and take nice big rangy steps because that's free speed. But in the longer races like a mountain marathon, as you said, you want to take little smaller steps, a little shuffle, step down the hill. Try and take it more in, in on on a midfoot section. It's okay if your heel comes down, almost like you want to scrape your foot down the hill and have the sole of your shoe handle the friction rather than hammering your hip and your knee, especially your knee. So uh, that that's uh, that, that's that's something to look at. If you can get a look at some uh, some footage of of the of the great uh, Kiwi triathlete Bevan Doherty running downhill. Uh, there's nothing more to be said. If you watch him run downhill, he's he's about as as good as I've ever seen anybody run downhill. Fantastic. 
Also now, maybe get your hands down and, and, and you know, just open, uh, open your elbow angles a little bit and just widen your arms a little bit. Sorry, Brent. No, that's all right. Um, I was going to say, you've also um, put some um, videos. So you've got a new program or a course coming out where you're talking more about this sort of stuff, um, and it's going to be a very in-depth course. Uh, you've got some free videos that people who have joined this and people that are listening to the podcast later on as well, that they can watch these videos and get um, some more visual demonstrations. So um, for the guys that are on this hangout here, you can just see that um, but button on the bottom right-hand side that says free running videos. So um, you can click that and go and watch some um, more videos about Bobby talking about this sort of stuff. So I've never a chance to go through those yet, but um, I'm looking forward to doing that after the call. Um, and the other thing is um, there's a bit of a discount there for um, people who are on this call uh, who will listen to the podcast later too um, on Bobby's upcoming um, product as well. So you can get a bit of a discount there. And full disclosure, I, I don't make any money from, um, you know, if anyone buys this, I just wanted to um, interview Bobby on this sort of stuff because um, firstly, I'm interested to improve my running, but I know that some of the videos and some of the stuff that I've got from Bobby's videos have been um, have been that good that, you know, I want to share with um, with the triathletes that um, do follow the effortless swimming stuff. So um, thanks so much for um, being on the call, Bobby. And um, you know I've learned a lot, and I'm sure we'll um, probably do another one of these, you know, down the track too, because I think they're really good value um, where people can ask questions. And you know, it's it's not often that um, you get to learn things from um, such an experienced coach like yourself. So um, yeah, I uh, really appreciate it. We've, I've just got another question come through, so I'm. I've done my All big right, uh, my big closing sequence, but um, I'll uh, I'll just answer this question as ask this question as well. So I've got um, someone's asked. You mentioned that running frequency is more important than duration. As an Ironman athlete looking to run sub three, three fifteen marathon, what how much threshold training would you recommend? Um, you know the, the the problem with threshold is a great question, by the way. The problem with threshold training is is not in the training itself, but in the definition of training. So in Ironman, I would focus more on what I call a, a steady state running, and also on on the laws, the principle of specificity. So uh, once you get into those last four to six weeks before the race, you've got to spend a lot of time both both in your brick workouts. And, and in, in other pure run workouts, working on exactly the pace that you want to run to get, to get that sub three hour run in. And so they become very, very important. But the duration, uh, you know, a tip that I can give you there is, is that sometimes the duration leads to, uh, detraining because it's hard to recover from tempo runs like that. So I give my athletes things like four by five K or, you know, um, uh, even five by five K. So they'll do 25 K. Uh, at that intensity with, say, a 90-second break in between. Or, you know, athletes that maybe are not quite as durable, they might do, um, uh, you know, 2K repeats. They might do, uh, you know, 10 2K repeats, 8 2K repeats at that pace with a little bit of a breakdown in between. So uh, I, I hope that, that that gives you some idea. That's um, just, that's just Sorry, Nick, you go. All right. Now, I just wanted to say to the folks on the podcast that, you know, that, that website is bobbymcgee.com forward slash run transformation preview. You know, if they, if they look at that, they'll, they'll, they'll get a, get a sense of those free videos and, and what the, what the course will be like. The, the course will be three components will be running mechanics and drills, run training, and then also a section on mental skills. 
Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this because uh, I'm going to get the program and go through it because um, I think it's going to be very useful. And uh, there's a friend of mine who he's not a very good runner at all. He's he was a Australian team swimmer. He could swim um, he could swim really well, but he just can't run to save his life. So he's uh, he's pretty keen to go through the videos too um, because he wants to develop his run. So um, you've probably got a change on your hands there with him, but uh, you know um, he's really looking forward to it as well. So um, um, nothing gives me more pleasure than than getting getting one of the big guys, you know, one of the one of the Aussie Ironman guys, not 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 Ironman triathlon, but uh, you know, your your guys, surf life saving Ironman guys, to to run fast. Uh, I've worked with some of them in the past, and and it's a joy to see a guy, you know, coming in at a at a hundred kilos running at four minutes a k. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. It's um, a lot of momentum they've got there. Absolutely, especially on the downhills. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, um, thanks, thanks again for that, Bobby. This is um, I've really enjoyed, it and I hope um, hope the audience has too. So, um, again, go to Bobby's website, bobbymcgee.com, um, or the free videos at bobbymcgee.com forward slash run transformation preview, um, and you can get those videos there. So, I'll put the links on the website as well on swimmingpodcast.com, and uh, yeah, and this is this has been fantastic. So, thank you, Bobby. Oh, thank you, Brent. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening in. Thanks for joining us on the Effortless Swimming Podcast. To get transcriptions, bonus videos, and to be the first to hear about new episodes, go to swimmingpodcast.com. <laughs>